Welcome back to Horror Science, a podcast exploring the facts behind your favorite scary movies. This week we'll be looking at Pan's Labyrinth, directed by Guillermo del Toro and distributed by Warner Brothers in 2006. The film takes place in the summer of 1944 and follows 10-year-old Ophelia as she travels back and forth between post-Civil War Spain and a fantasy world inhabited by fairies, the pale man, and a fawn. This episode is going to be a little bit different from the other horror science podcast episodes. The first three episodes focused a lot on psychology, biology, and mental health. This episode will have a little bit of science at the end, but the first half will be concerned with theology and historical events that give context to the film. So first we're going to go all the way back to ancient Greece and Rome to examine the origins of the god Pan and Fauns, as well as the differences between those two. Then we'll jump ahead a couple thousands of years to the Francoist period in Spain. After that history lesson, I'll get back to the usual science. We'll take a look at the development and spread of labyrinths, as well as their modern day uses. Finally, I'll close out the show with some information on the Mandrake root, including its roles in religion and medicine. So let's dive right into the story of Pan and the Fawn. If you haven't seen Pan's Labyrinth, one of the film's driving characters is this magical half-man, half-goat that's referred to as the fawn. The fawn appears to Ophelia in the middle of a labyrinth, but we'll get to the significance of that later on. Like you'd expect from any classic fairy tale, the fawn tells Ophelia that she is actually a princess and gives her three tasks to complete. Throughout the course of the film, the fawn is really hot and cold. One scene he's all about helping Ophelia return to her kingdom, and the next he's telling her that she's weak and she will never fill her role as a princess. The dialogue of Pan's Labyrinth is spoken in Spanish, thankfully, since it's a movie about Francoist Spain, and the original Spanish title of the film is El Labyrinto del Fauno, which directly translates to English as The Labyrinth of the Fawn. However, the decision was made to replace the fawn with Pan in the English translation. Chronologically, Pan came first, so I'll talk about him first. For the first half of this segment, I'm going to bounce back and forth between two sources. And like always, you can find the links to these sources and the ones that I'll use throughout the episode on the landing page for this episode, which can be found at horrorscience.x10host.com. So the first source is a 2013 entry in the Ancient History Encyclopedia written by Mark Cartwright. The second is an entry in the New World Encyclopedia titled Pan Mythology that was also published in 2013. I don't know what was happening in 2013, but it must have been a pretty popular time to study ancient Greek gods. So Pan started to appear in Greek art around 500 BCE. His upper body resembles a man, but he has the lower body of a goat, and he's also got goat horns sticking out of his forehead. Scholars haven't agreed on who Pan's parents were, but the majority consensus is that he was the son of Greek god Hermes and an unnamed nymph. The Greeks were really nice to women. Pan took on the role of god of pasture, hunting, and livestock. The Greeks believed that Pan had the ability to make domesticated animals sterile or fertile. There was this idea that Pan was benevolent, and a sanctuary for stalked animals was set up on Mount Lycaeus in Arcadia. According to the stories, Pan would protect animals in the sanctuary from wolves. Because of their belief in Pan's power over livestock, many shepherds would travel to caves and make sacrifices to him. Common offerings included young goats or sheep, small clay statues, vases, lamps, and grasshopper figures made out of gold. After learning about these offerings, I was surprised to find out 
that some hunters and shepherds behave towards Pan in a way that most modern-day Christians and Muslims would find really disrespectful. Uh, for instance, if there was a bad hunting trip or if livestock weren't breeding well enough, certain hunters and shepherds would take a statue of Pan and whip it to try to get his attention. I haven't heard of anything like this in today's two largest world religions, so it was interesting to read about the Greeks' complicated relationship with Pan. Pan, like a lot of other Greek gods, was a little overactive when it came to his sex life. He mostly went after nymphs, but most of them said, no, I'll pass. Once, he disguised his half-goat body in sheepskin so that he could get with the moon goddess Selene, and it actually worked. According to some accounts, in an effort to populate the world with a bunch of little baby pans, he slept with every single menad, who were the female followers of the god Dionysus. I couldn't find a figure for how many menads existed. I'm going to guess it's pretty high. But I did find a website that posed Barbie dolls in ancient Greek scenes, which was a lot more than I was expecting to find. Uh, so other than making babies, Pan is often associated with music. The Pan flute was named after him. So here's the story behind that. Pan fell in love with Syrinx, a nymph, but she wasn't having any of that. Pan couldn't handle rejection, so he tried to corner her one day after she got in from hunting. She managed to run away and she called out for help. One source says that she yelled for Zeus, and the other says that she yelled to river nymphs. Either way, the outcome was the same. Just as Pan reached her, she turned into river reeds. This really got under Pan's skin, and with the self-control of a frat boy, he smashed the reeds on the ground. But then Pan starts reminiscing and realizes that those reeds are all he has left of Syrinx. He starts to kiss the broken reeds, so I guess he's not totally awful. And as he does this, he realizes that it makes beautiful music. From this point on, he's almost always depicted in art with this flute or with a hair trap. Pan was also pretty helpful to the Greeks during war. As the story goes, he could create a panic among the opposition soldiers during battle. The Greeks believed Pan's help was crucial in their victory over the Persians at the Battle of Marathon. Aside from being a womanizer, so far, it doesn't seem like Pan is that bad of a guy. He helps with livestock and hunting, he makes music, and he helps the Greeks defend their territory. Throughout much of Greek history, Pan was regarded as a pretty good guy. But all that changed around 300 CE when Christianity began to spread throughout Europe. The information from this half of the segment comes from Kevin Hearn's 1998 academic paper titled The Demonization of Pan. Some poets of the time claimed that Pan was a pre-Christian model for Jesus Christ. Both figures were shepherds, and both weren't entirely human or entirely divine. Pan was half god, half goat, and he spent his time on earth. Jesus Christ was simultaneously a member of the Trinity and a flesh-and-blood human. The clergy weren't too fond of this comparison. Firstly, they viewed their god as the only truth, and were unwilling to acknowledge that past religions may have influenced Christianity. Secondly, Pan was often associated with promiscuity, something that the church frowned upon. So, according to Hearn's research, the church set out on a campaign to vilify Pan. Portions of the Bible associate less than stellar physical appearances with punishment from God. For example, certain books claim that plagues and deformities are a punishment from God. It wasn't too difficult for the church to extend this teaching to Pan, claiming that he was a sex-obsessed, morally impure demon who had been punished with a half-goat body by their God. Hearn's paper also claimed that the church at the time began to associate the imagery of Pan with their devil. 
He claims that when the fear of God didn't work on potential converts, fear of the devil was used instead. He writes, quote, Thanks to Christianity, Pan literally became the world's biggest scapegoat. Images of Pan were carved into church doors and began to infiltrate Christian art. The Western view of the devil as a being with horns coming out of his head and goat hoofs in place of his feet is directly lifted from Pan. This image is stuck as modern depictions of the devil in movies and art almost always include these goat-like aspects. Hearn closes his paper with a powerful quote that I'm going to read for you all. He says, quote, The Christian demonization of a randy but otherwise benign nature god seems quite clear to one living in a secular century. From all the ancient sources and archaeological evidence, Pan was obviously a greatly revered, rather than greatly feared, being at one point. It was only the ascetic values of the Judeo-Christian tradition that doomed him to play the role of the ultimate bad guy. So, with this knowledge on the history of Pan, it's an interesting choice that the team behind Pan's Labyrinth chose that name for the English translation of the title. Depending on which time period's views you subscribe to, this could either mean that the being in the movie is benevolent and connected to nature, or that he is closely related to the devil. In the second case, it's really uncomfortable for him to be hanging around this 10-year-old girl. But, the original Spanish title refers to the being as a fawn. In fact, he is never referred to as Pan in the film's dialogue. He introduces himself to Ophelia as the fawn, and when Ophelia and Mercedes discuss him later, they use the noun fawn. So what are the implications of this classification? This information comes from The Fawns of Roman Mythology, an article written by Colin Quartermain and published in 2015. Fawns got their start in Roman mythology, and were the children of Faunus, the Roman god of the forest, plains, and fields, and Fauna, his female counterpart. Fauns served as the spirit gods of the woods. Originally, fauns were depicted as mirror images of Faunus. As a result, they were human in form and could only be male. However, the Romans started to borrow a bit of theology from the Greeks. Because of this intermingling, the Roman fauns began to pick up some of the physical characteristics of the Greek god Pan. This is the point where fauns began to be represented as half man, half goat. At this point, the Roman fauns and the Greek satyrs began to mix. Satyrs were the companions of the Greek god Dionysus and were male in form, with the ears of a donkey, the tail of a horse, and the nose of a pug. Satyrs were connected with wine and lust, and these traits were transferred to the fauns. However, the two did maintain some separation. The fauns were considered more helpful, while the satyrs would bring harm. The article gives the example of a person lost in the forest. The fawn would help them find their way, while the satyr would lead them farther from the path. This part of the theology is pretty interesting in connection to Pan's Labyrinth. Throughout the film, the fawn seems like he's on a mission to guide Ophelia back to her kingdom. Given the actions of his character, it seems that the direct translation of this title, The Fawn's Labyrinth, would have made more sense than Pan's Labyrinth. There's one more historical look I'd like to get into before I get back to the usual scientific stuff, and that's the Francoist period in Spain. Director Guillermo del Toro intended to create a trilogy about this time period. The first film, The Devil's Backbone, or El Espinaza del Diablo, was released in 2001. It takes place in 1939, the last year of the Spanish Civil War, and follows a young boy in an orphanage. The second film is Pan's Labyrinth, which was released in 2006 and takes place in 1944. Unfortunately, the third film is yet to be made. 
One of the subplots of Pan's Labyrinth follows a housekeeper, Mercedes, as she sneaks aid to her rebel brother, who's hiding out in a forested mountain near the base. This is a pretty ballsy move, considering that Mercedes works for Capitan Vidal, who commands several military officers on his military base-house combo. I want to explore what was happening in Spain during this time period so that viewers of the film can understand this subplot a little more clearly. So the background information for this background information comes from a History.com article that was published in 2009 entitled Francisco Franco. In 1936, a civil war broke out in Spain, which ended in 1939 with the nationalist victory over the Republicans. And for American listeners, it's important to note that these Republicans didn't subscribe to the ideals of the Grand Old Party. In fact, they're a lot closer to the American left, and they received support from the Soviet Union. The Nationalists were led by former military leader Francisco Franco and were backed by Hitler in Nazi Germany and Mussolini in Fascist Italy. That gives you a preview of Franco's character. Although these two didn't win World War II, they did help Franco defeat the Republicans. I don't want to dive too deep into the war for this episode of the podcast, because I do have the devil's backbone on my shortlist for future episodes, so I'll cover it more then. For now, I want to focus on what happened in the years following the war. This information comes from a 2009 article written by Lydia Bocanegra titled, A Short History of the Republican Exile, the Big Exodus of 1939. During the war, the Nationalists worked their way north, either killing the Republicans or pushing them to the mountains of northern Spain and eventually France. According to the article, approximately 465,000 Republican men, women, and children crossed the border to France between April and December of 1939. Unfortunately for the refugees, they weren't met with the most open of arms. France had been suffering from an economic depression for nearly a decade, and the nearly half million refugees couldn't do much to add to the GDP. The majority of them were illiterate in French and lacked professional skills. In addition to this, the right-wing government of France wasn't too fond of the socialist ideas that were represented by the Spanish Republicans. Fortunately, Mexico, Chile, and the Dominican Republic were willing to accept some of the refugees. Unfortunately, though, these three countries couldn't absorb half a million people, so approximately 268,000 were sent back to Spain. By the end of 1939, only 182,000 refugees remained in France. I'm going to switch gears for a little bit and talk about an article written by Antonio Tellez in 1996 titled Armed Resistance to Franco, 1939 through 1965. You see, not all of the Republicans fled to France. These rebels were referred to as the Spanish Maquis. These men hid in the mountains of northern Spain in groups of up to 100 men. The actions of the various groups included bombing strategic areas, political assassinations, movement of arms, the protection of individuals involved in underground political activity, bank robberies and forgery to fund themselves and destabilize the Spanish economy, rescue missions to free captured rebels, and finally, skirmishes with fascist forces. These were pretty busy guys. Not a lot of information is out there on the Maquis, though, because Franco's dictatorship wasn't that fond of advertising dissent among the people. But in 1968, nearly 30 years after the end of the war, the government finally released some information about the Maquis. These figures will give you an idea of the extent of their numbers. So between 1943 and 1952, the time period when the Maquis were most active, 
there were nearly 2,000 skirmishes between Franco's men and the Maquis. Over the nine-year period, 2,166 Maquis were killed, 3,382 Maquis were captured or surrendered, and 19,407 individuals were arrested as liaisons, accessories, or for aiding and abetting. Given this information, the subplot involving Mercedes and her rebel brother in Pan's Labyrinth is completely realistic. Her brother Pedro leads a small group of rebels hiding out in the mountains surrounding Vidal's camp. Throughout the film, we see the group move arms, steal supplies from the base, and plan future attacks. At the end of Pan's Labyrinth, the rebels get a happy ending. They're able to take control of the base, and they manage to corner and kill Vidal as he exits the labyrinth. It's looking pretty good for the Maquis at the end of the film, but this is not what actually happened. The last Maquis, Jose Castro Viega, died in 1965, but the Maquis were almost non-existent by 1952. Logistically, the rebel groups were spread too thin across the mountains and weren't able to coordinate with each other. They also had trouble keeping themselves armed. The real nail in the coffin came in 1947, when the government unleashed counter-guerrilla bands which were highly trained security personnel who dressed in the clothes of the Maquis and carried the same weapons. This created a lot of confusion among the Maquis, and several of Franco's followers were able to infiltrate the Maquis groups. If you thought it couldn't get shadier than this, it did. The counter-guerrilla bands carried out several brutal murders, which they attributed to the actual Maquis. The general public couldn't tell the difference, and popular support for the Maquis dropped to almost zero. Some rebels managed to escape to France or Northern Africa, but not all of them were that lucky. Several were executed by strangulation or firing squad, and those who escaped the death penalty got over 20 years in prison instead. Franco's dictatorship continued until his death in 1975. At that point, Spain began to transition to the constitutional monarchy it has today. Now I want to move into some of the more typical stuff for this podcast. First, I want to look at the origins and uses of the film's namesake, labyrinths. Labyrinths have had conflicting meanings over the past couple thousands of years. For the first use of them, we'll have to jump back to ancient Greece again. This information comes from an article published on Loyola University Chicago's website titled Labyrinths, Their Origins and Development. A Greek legend states that King Minos of Crete built an inescapable labyrinth built to contain the violent Minotaur, who was a half-man, half-bull. The Greeks really liked mixing animal and human anatomy. At this point in history, labyrinths may have represented fear, but they could also symbolize protection. The story goes on that a noble named Theseus fell in love with the daughter of King Minos, Ariadne. Ariadne gave Theseus a ball of yarn, which he used to mark his way through the labyrinth. When he reached the center, he killed the Minotaur and followed his string back to the entrance. As time and cultures went on, the symbolism of the labyrinth began to evolve. This information comes from Natasha Gelling's The Winding History of the Maze, published in 2014 by the Smithsonian Museum. Some Christians related the labyrinth to sin, believing that a walk through the labyrinth could serve as a mini-pilgrimage following the act of sin. Gelling also provides other examples from Northern Europe. Nordic fishermen would walk through labyrinths before a voyage to ensure a safe, profitable trip. Young men in Germany would walk through the labyrinth as a part of their transition to adulthood. These last two interpretations of the labyrinth seem the most closely related to Pan's labyrinth. 
In a way, the fantasy world Ophelia found at the center of the labyrinth kept her safe from the horrors of life on a military base in Franco's Spain. One important theme of the film is Ophelia's development into an independent, moral young woman. This may mirror the transition of the young men in Germany. A bit surprisingly, labyrinths are making a bit of a comeback. This comes from a 2008 article written by Jim Gershbach titled, Labyrinths Find Their Way Onto Hospital Grounds as Paths to Healing. And uh, just as a side note before I jump into this, it is starting to rain where I am, so we might be getting some pretty cool gnat sounds in the background of this. Uh, but anyways, Antioch Medical Center in Northern California and Sunnyside Medical Center in Calacamus, Oregon, began to offer walkable labyrinths to patients in 2007. The process began in 2000 when former Director of Health Education for KP Hospitals, Jane Worth, met with Reverend Jürgen Schwing, a spiritual care manager for KP. Together, the two obtained a grant for finger labyrinths. These were wooden boards with grooves that patients could trace with their fingers. This trial was successful as the majority of patients reported lower stress levels after using the board. After this success, Reverend Schwing was able to obtain funding for a full-size, walkable outdoor labyrinth. He theorized that many stressed individuals would benefit more from the physical movement of walking than from sitting and tracing a pattern on a board. In his experience, focusing on walking along the path allows patients, as well as staff and family members, to clear their minds and relax. There are pictures included with this source that show the labyrinth at Sunnyside Medical Center, and it's a lot different than I was initially expecting. It's located outside, but there's a flat stone flooring. The labyrinth itself doesn't have tall walls. Uh, initially, I was picturing the hedge maze from The Shining movie, but it's nothing like that. The path is just laid out, distinguished with darker and lighter stones. Reflecting on it now, that design is probably a lot more effective than towering hedges, as there is absolutely no fear of getting lost, since the labyrinth is just an outline painted on the floor. Before I wrap this episode up, I want to cover the mandrake root. In Pan's Labyrinth, the fawn gives Ophelia a mandrake root to place under the bed of her sick, pregnant mother. Later, when Vidal discovers the root hidden under the bed, Ophelia's mother throws it in the fireplace. The root starts shaking and screaming, and Ophelia's mom drops to the floor because all the root's magic disappeared when she set it on fire. So before watching this movie, I had never heard of the mandrake root, so I didn't know any of the myths surrounding it. I pulled the information for this segment from two sources. The first is a 2003 article titled Myths and Mandrakes, written by Anthony John Carter and published in the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine. The second is a 2008 entry in the New World Encyclopedia titled Mandrake Plant. Mandrake is the common name for any plant that belongs to the genus Mandagura, but the most popular is the species Mandagura officinarum. The mandrake has leaves that are between 6 and 16 inches long. It also has white-green flowers that produce small red berries in the spring. But the most interesting part of this plant is underground. The root system that grows in the soil is long and thick and often has branches that resemble human arms and legs. In fact, drawings in old plant guides and gardening books often just depict a man in place of the root. The plant is native to the Mediterranean region and the Himalayas, so, so far, the location aspect of this is appropriate for Pan's Labyrinth. The mandrake has religious, mystic, and medicinal connections. One of the first references to this root came from the book of Genesis in chapter 30. 
Here's a short rundown of that story. This guy named Jacob had a wife named Leah, and together they had four children. Then Jacob does a classic jerk move. He marries Leah's sister, Rachel, because Leah has become infertile. Fast forward, and Jacob's oldest son finds some mandrakes in their field. Rachel wants the roots, so she offers Leah one last night in bed with Jacob in exchange for them. That night, Leah magically conceives a boy. From this point on, mandrakes were associated with improving fertility in women. In fact, someone with baby fever would sleep with one under their pillow. From what I've read in these two sources, it seems like the root was believed to aid more in conception than in prenatal development. So at this point, it seems like a little bit of a stretch was made to include it for this purpose in Pan's Labyrinth. But as I read on, I found that beliefs surrounding the mandrake root evolved, as they often do. After several hundred years, people began to think that maybe this root could bring them wealth, popularity, and power. So a lot of people began carrying these things around as a good luck charm, which I guess is at least a little less creepy than a rabbit's foot. The Catholic Church, however, didn't really like this. In fact, part of the evidence used to put Joan of Arc to death was the accusation that she carried one of these roots around. And it's not just rebellious Catholics that believe in the powers of the Mandrake root. It's still used today by neo-pagan religions and Germanic revivalism religions. While the fertility and luck charm aspects of the Mandrake root are debatable, it was used legitimately in medicine starting in the time of the Greeks. The root has a lot of purposes, including soothing pain, aiding in sleep, and serving as an emetic. Unfortunately, though, all parts of the mandrake root are poisonous in large enough doses. In fact, the Arabic name for the plant literally means hurtful to cattle, who are often killed after eating the plant's flowers. In humans, overdose can lead to hallucinations, convulsions, coma, and death. The last thing I want to cover relates to the part in the film where the root is thrown in the fireplace and starts screaming. Surprisingly, this actually has some basis in older myths. Some cultures believed that the root that was dug up would scream, which resulted in the death or madness of everyone who heard it. But these cultures conveniently found a way around that with specific techniques to harvest the root. The first century Romano-Jewish scholar Flavius Josephus wrote that you could dig a trench around the root, then tie a dog to the root. After that, the person has to run away. When the dog starts to take after the person, the string uproots the mandrake, and the dog dies instead of the human, which is really selfish and rude. Thankfully, the Greek Theophorastus and Roman Pliny the Elder had an easier method. They said that all you had to do was use a sword to draw a circle in the ground around the plant and then dig it out facing westward. You didn't have to sacrifice spot for this method, which makes it kind of nice. So that's it for the fourth episode of Horror Science. It was a little different from usual this time. Uh, we started by looking at the mythology behind Pan and Fawns, and you got a short little history lesson about Spain. And lastly, we went back to more of the usual sciencey stuff with labyrinths and mandrake roots. As always, if you're listening on iTunes, feel free to subscribe and leave a rating or review. If you missed the website earlier, which will have links to all the sources that I referenced throughout this episode, that's available at horrorscience.x10host.com. Also, this is something new. Uh, there is now a SoundCloud account for this podcast, and it's under the username Horror Science. And on that profile, you can find the audio for all of the episodes. Finally, if you've got any comments on this episode or suggestions for future films, you can send an email to horrorsciencepodcast at gmail.com 
or send a tweet out to at Thanks for listening and be on the lookout for a new episode next week.